Well, let me begin by wishing you all a very happy new year. Thank you. I know I'm a day ahead, but I think I can probably get away with it. So happy new year, anyway. This is the time of year when our thoughts often turn to making New Year's resolutions. But in my experience, they can be a little bit like Marmite, in the sense that people either love them or hate them. I wonder which camp you fall into. Perhaps you have already decided on your list of resolutions for 2018. I wonder if there is any similarity to ones that I have attempted over the years, usually involving things such as eating more healthily, exercising more, losing weight, those sorts of things. But I consistently fail to maintain any of these, much past the first few days in January, sometimes not even past New Year's Day. Perhaps some of you do better, but I'm sure there are others among us who really have no time for New Year's resolutions at all. Well, whether you love them or hate them, New Year's resolutions tend to be based around trying hard to improve ourselves in some area or other of our lives. But the question that I'd like us to consider this morning as we turn to our passage from Matthew's Gospel is whether there is something that God might want to say to us at the start of 2018 other than simply must try harder. So let's turn to the passage together. It's on page 967 of the Bibles, if you'd like to have it open and follow along with what I'm saying. And the first thing I just want to point out is that in this section of the Gospel, Matthew has effectively pressed the fast-forward button. So we are sitting here in church today, just six days after we have celebrated the birth of Christ at Christmas. But our passage today is set 30 years after Christmas, although we are only in chapter 3 of the Gospel. This story of Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry as an adult. And I think it's a great passage for us to read at the start of a new year, as we see how Jesus began this new chapter in his life, and consider how God might be calling us to begin the new chapter that lies ahead for us in the new year. So the passage begins with Jesus approaching John the Baptist at the River Jordan. Now, glance just a little bit higher up the page in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and we'll see a bit more about who John was and how he saw the purpose of his ministry. Let me read you what he says in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was all about repentance. We read in verse 6 how people came to him confessed their sins and were baptised. His role was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And he was under no illusions about his own importance. He recognised that he was simply the warm-up act for the one who would follow. 
the one whose sandals he was not fit to carry. And that's why John protests when Jesus approaches him for baptism and he tries to deter him. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John recognizes that Jesus was the one who was to come after him, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he can't understand why Jesus would choose to come and offer himself for baptism by John in the River Jordan. Now, when I was studying chemistry at university, there were a number of occasions where I had to give a talk about a project I had been working on to a lecture theatre full of people that included professors from the department and a whole load of people who knew rather more about the subject I was talking about than I did. It felt wrong on so many levels that I was standing there giving this talk to an audience of people who were so much better equipped to do so, and they were there listening to me. It's a trivial example, but perhaps shows a little of what John might be feeling as Jesus approaches and he says, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So why did Jesus insist? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons, and one is implied by what he says in verse 15. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. It is the right time. It is part of God's plan, and it marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But more than this, it also points towards the purpose for which Jesus had come into the world. For although he himself had no need of John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he had no sin of his own to repent of, yet he chose to stand alongside others in the river, identifying himself with them. And at the very start of his ministry, this sends a clear signpost to the purpose for which he has come, to take upon himself the sin of humanity and die on the cross to restore our relationship with God. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we've seen so far that Jesus chooses to submit to John's baptism, identifying himself with the people and pointing towards the purpose for which he has come. But let's move on now to look at the second scene in the story and consider what actually happens when Jesus is baptised. It must have been quite a moment to behold, don't you think? When Jesus came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. In addition, 
God himself speaks from heaven, confirming Jesus' identity as his son and speaking words of love and affirmation. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Did you notice how all three members of the Trinity are present? We have God the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus being baptised, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Father, Son and Spirit all involved at this key moment as the new chapter in Jesus' life and ministry begins. Now, you probably know we don't often preach on the Trinity here in church, despite being sat here in Holy Trinity Church. And I think there's at least one good reason for that, which is that it, it is not entirely straightforward to understand once you try and unpack it. But since this is one of the few occasions in Scripture when we see Father, Son and Spirit coming together in this sort of way, I think it's worth spending a little time this morning to consider what we can learn about the relationships between the members of the Trinity from this passage. Now let me just be clear what I'm talking about to start with. Essentially what Christians mean by the idea of the Trinity is that we believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. This is not to say that there are three gods or that God takes different shapes on different occasions, but rather our one God has three persons who know and love one another. And Matthew gives us a glimpse into the heart of God here as we see the relationships of love at work between the three members of the Trinity. Father, Son and Spirit love one another and seek to glorify one another. C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, puts it like this. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now, I love the idea of a dance to represent the relationships of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's an idea that Tim Keller picks up on and develops in his book, King's Cross. If you're interested in finding out more, there's, I think, one copy of this on the bookstore, but we could get some more. And in this dance, Father, Son, and Spirit are each centred on the others, loving and serving one another. Each is characterised by self-giving love. None insist that the others revolve around themselves, but each voluntarily circles and orbits around the others. There is nothing self-centred about the relationships of love within the dance of the Trinity. A self-centred person wants to be the centre around which everything and everyone else revolves. But this means that the dance becomes hazardous or even impossible. Let me try and explain what I mean. 
During the autumn, I loved watching Strictly Come Dancing on a Saturday night, week by week, and I expect many of you did too. One of the highlights for me came a few weeks before the end of the season, where the seven couples that remained in the competition all took to the dance floor together to compete in a special round of competition called the Paso Doble Son. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about and haven't seen the series, let me explain. The Paso Doble is one of the standard dances in the competition. It's a really flashy, showy, fun dance based on a Spanish bullfight. And in the Paso Doble Son, all seven couples took to the dance floor together to dance their own choreography to the same piece of music at the same time. They were judged by the judges and ranked according to their performance. It was really exciting to watch as each couple tried to outdo the others with their flashy choreography and sharp turns and exciting movements. But what really amazed me was that there were no collisions. And that was truly incredible, given that you had 14 individuals dancing flat out on a dance floor that is probably slightly smaller than the size of the centre block of this church. The reason why it worked, and not only that, but it was a beautiful sight to behold, was because everyone knew the rules of the dance. They had to keep moving around the dance floor in the same direction. They had to follow the direction of flow and orbit around their partner and the other dancers. If one person had stopped deciding to remain still and expect everyone else to revolve around them, chaos would have broken out. There's nothing self-centered about the relationships of love within the Trinity. Each is centered in the others, and each orbits around the others, creating a dance infinitely more beautiful than anything we saw on Strictly. But why does any of this matter? Well, let me continue with C.S. Lewis. He says this, it matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. This is what the God who created the universe is like. And he created us to enter into the dance too. Our vision as a church this year has been loving community and as we draw to the close of 2017, perhaps we might take the opportunity to reflect back on the year that is ending and have a think about what place have we given this, this year to relationships of love with God and with others. I started this morning by suggesting that there might be a better way to begin the new year than simply making New Year's resolutions to try harder in various areas of our lives. Instead, I'd like to leave us with some thoughts to reflect on at the start of this year, as we consider what it might look like for us to enter more fully 
into this dance of love with God in the year to come. What do we put at the centre of our lives? At various different times and for various good reasons, it may perhaps be that we centre our lives around our families, our jobs, our friends or our own needs. But what would it look like this year to put God more firmly at the centre and allow our relationship with him to take centre stage in the dance? And how do we approach our relationships with others at home, at church, at work or elsewhere? Do we, consciously or not, place ourselves in the centre and try and get everybody else to orbit around us? Or do we place God at the centre and allow our loving relationship with him to overflow in acts of loving service to others? I'd like to finish by reading some words from Tim Keller's book, King's Cross where he attempts to put into words the invitation that God holds out to each one of us, whether we have been a Christian for many years or are just beginning to explore the idea of faith. As I read these words, listen for what God might want to say to you as we begin the new chapter of 2018 tomorrow. God says, If you glorify me, if you centre your entire life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am in myself, then you will step into the dance, which is what you are made for. You're made not just to believe in me or to be spiritual in some general way, not just to pray and get a bit of inspiration when things are tough. You are made to centre everything in your life on me, to think of everything in terms of your relationship to me, to serve me unconditionally. That is where you'll find your joy. That is what the dance is about. Are you in the dance? Or do you just believe that God is out there somewhere? Are you in the dance? Or do you just pray to God every so often when you're in trouble? Are you in the dance? Or are you looking around for someone to orbit around you? If life is a divine dance, We all need more than anything to be in it. That is what we're made for. We are made to enter a divine dance with the Trinity.